Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. In our cases this week, an affair ends a marriage and a young mother's life. The husband has admitted to killing the pregnant wife after an argument over his cheating. He explained to the jury that it wasn't premeditated, but his penchant for making to-do lists did him in along with the crime scene evidence. But first, a 10-year-old girl is pulled off her bicycle as she is riding home. Police say that she was sexually assaulted and killed by what turns out to be a child himself, just four years older. An eighth grader is charged with murdering a fourth grader. And according to published reports, the kid's our cousins. We are recording this on Wednesday, May 4th of 2022. And our guest today is Alina Burroughs, who is a former crime scene investigator from the Orange County Sheriff's Department. That's in Florida. And she's also the host of Investigation Discovery's Crime Scene Confidential. Alina, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So happy to be here. We just, you know, our audience cares very much about the details, whether it's the details on the things that people say, the details on the forensics. And um, I was watching one of your interviews and you were talking about how people lie, but the um, science and the forensics don't. That's it. That's what it's all about. And that's why Crime Scene Confidential follows the evidence, because oftentimes we see that there's a narrative involved when we when we get attached to the emotions behind the case. And as we see today, you know, both of these cases are certainly those that we have an innate emotional feeling towards, especially, um, you know, tragically, when we look at a case with children that are involved, you know, our tendency is to go to an emotional gut response. So we have to look to the evidence in these cases and, and follow the evidence because it doesn't lie and it, it doesn't have a narrative. Correct. Correct. And it's so interesting how one leads, like the science can lead to the person, the person can lead to the science and back and forth. It's like a relationship where you can't really have one without the other to a degree. Absolutely. It's it's a delicate balance. And I've always said crime scene investigation is both an art and a science. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Can't wait to hear your insight. We have obviously very disturbing stories. The first one has really been bothering me, as I'm sure it is 
all of you who have heard anything about this. Our first case is about Lily Peters, a 10-year-old girl who was reported missing from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. She's been found dead in a wooded area along a bike path. Now, Lily was riding her bike home from her aunt's house just four blocks to her own home, and she never showed up that night. So her parents called police when she didn't arrive. This would have been on the night of April 23rd. This is a very recent case. So, of course, police, search dogs, volunteers looking for Lily. The following morning, her bicycle is found along that trail, which is very popular. And then, not too long after finding her bicycle, they find Lily's body in the wooded area. So, basically, you know, in less than 24 hours, they were able to find Lily. The The worst part is, obviously, she was found dead. She was sexually assaulted. She was brutally attacked. So Alina, I would think at that very moment, um, because we also rely a lot on surveillance cameras from ring doorbells, um, businesses, things like that. In this case, because you have found the child so quickly within, I mean, I'm going to say it's less than 24 hours. How important is that to the investigation? Yeah, that's critical. Uh, finding her so soon, the chances of obtaining, you know, maybe DNA evidence. Um, we know that strangulation, you know, the medical examiner has reported back that that is potentially, you know, part of cause of death. That's contact. That's forceful contact. And from an evidence perspective, forceful contact means potential for DNA. Finding her very quickly means less time exposed to the elements, which means a greater chance at finding some sort of DNA on the body. And uh, things like, for example, her bicycle, the area around, um, you know, we always see everything taped off. Um, Just so I can understand, you would have been the one, would you have been the one who would have gone into the crime scene when you were working for the sheriff's department? Yeah, that's correct. So typically how crime scene investigation works is first responding officers are usually the one that gets the call. So when a passerby, when somebody finds, you know, a victim, they would call 911. They would say, I found this in this location and they would dispatch a police officer to that area. That police officer, that first responding officer would be the one to cordon off the area with crime scene tape. So they take that immediate control over the scene, trying to limit the number of people that have access to it as soon as possible. And then then they would call in specialty units. That's when you call in crime scene. That's when you call in homicide detectives. And then they are the only ones that are going to then go underneath the crime scene tape. All right. So now we have found Lily. We have found her bicycle. And as police have said, not only was she brutally attacked, but she was also sexually assaulted. And we were talking about a 10-year-old child here. Um, I think what's what's even as, as shocking as her murder is who has been arrested. A 14-year-old boy a teen has been arrested. Uh, Police have not revealed his name. He's being treated as an adult, but his name has not been revealed. Therefore, uh, there are some media outlets that are using his name. We are not because the courts and the police are not. And as if this were not horrible enough that you have a 14-year-old, allegedly the one to have killed and sexually assaulted a 10-year-old, these two are apparently cousins. Yes. Cousins. Yes. So this just, I, 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 I can't even believe we're having this conversation of a 14-year-old killing a 10-year-old and that they're cousins. Right. Uh, which, which I think 
um, you know, just thinking in Lily's head as she is riding her little bike home, if she sees someone familiar, she's not going to be on alert and say, oh boy, I better pedal faster and get out of here. Right. This feels safe to her. This is, you know, in all likelihood, somebody that she could have routinely played with, you know, so that's particularly alarming, you know, from that perspective of there should be a safe space, right? Obviously children should be a safe, protected class. And that's just, you know, not how it is. That's, I think, what what everybody finds so upsetting about cases. There's just certain parts that you just, parts of our society that you just don't mess with, you know, children and the elderly, particularly vulnerable aspects of the population. And she should have been safe from family and she wasn't. From an evidence perspective, it can be challenging that this is somebody that she's played with or, you know, potentially, you know, hung out with before because, uh, you know, fingerprint evidence, maybe if he has disposed of her bike or, you know, maybe hidden it off of the path. And, you know, we don't know this, of course, um, just my thought process that his fingerprints on her bike might not be as meaningful if they can prove that they've played together in the past. Whereas if we had third party with no expectation that they should have come in contact in the past, that person's fingerprints, we would have no reason to be on her bicycle. And that could be a link, but had they played together in the past, you know, now his fingerprints on her bicycle are, don't carry the same weight. Right. But for example, his DNA evidence, whether it be fingerprints or his DNA, if it were in places of, uh, let's say, underneath her clothing or anything like that, under no circumstances should he have been anywhere in those areas. So that would be the other side of it, I would think. Absolutely. So the good news about recovering her so quickly and also finding him and identifying him as a suspect so quickly is that the chances are finding Lily's DNA maybe you know potentially under his fingernails, um, on his clothing, in his undergarments. You know, making an assumption based on the grooming and, and bathing habits of a fourteen-year-old boy. But you know, we know that they've done a search warrant at his house, so hoping that they've obtained some of his clothing, uh, fingernail scrapings, etc. And based on the fact that we have sexual assault, there is a great likelihood as horrific as it is to have this conversation about any anybody much less a child from a physical evidence standpoint that is probably the best chance we have at placing him at the crime scene is if he has left evidence on or inside lily and as we've said um and we'll get into this a little bit later he apparently has confessed to the authorities and has given some details, and we're going to reveal some of those in a little bit. Um, I just want to stay on the dynamics of this family for a moment, because here you have cousins who are involved, but it gets far more complicated than that. Um, According to the Daily Mail, the teen's father, the one who's the accused killer here, he is himself a convicted sex offender, okay? A pedophile a pedophile. This man would have been Lily's uncle. Already we have dynamics that are horrific. 
Um, the Daily Mail is reporting that the teen's 37-year-old father has been convicted for possession of child pornography, which he spent three years in prison. He was released a year ago in April of 2021, and according to the Daily Mail, the father is currently on the sex offender list, as he should be, and is living in a halfway house. Okay, no doubt, no doubt that for this young man, having lived and grown up under those circumstances would not only be difficult, challenging, and who knows what he himself was exposed to. Right. None of that, none of that. Excuses. No, it doesn't. Right. I, I am, when, as, as I was digging through this, I thought, oh my God, this is horrible. This is, this is just about as horrible as it gets. I mean, this is a family tragedy like I've not seen right. in a long time. Yeah. And it brings apart, you know, or brings about the issue of nature nurture. Right. Is this is there a genetic issue at stake here? Is this how, you know, the boy has been raised? And certainly we are going to see this as a mitigating circumstance addressed in court. Certainly they are going to bring this up and say that this was his, somehow this was his path, right? And as you've said before, there are a lot of people on this planet that have had terrible childhoods. There are a lot of people that have suffered abuse, sexual abuse, mental, emotional abuse, physical abuse at the hands of their own family members and others. And they do not all grow up to become abusers. And they certainly do not grow up to murder other people. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely gives context as we are all sitting here saying, how, how could a 14 year old, a, a, a child himself do this to another child, his very own cousin. And I think when you hear the family background, you go, oh, oh, that is complicated. That is complicated, but I'm sorry. You know, he doesn't get a chance. Well, he did. He took Lily's joy away. And I'm sorry that this young man's joy was taken away because according to other family members, the murder suspect had a very difficult time. The teen had a very difficult time when his father was arrested. No doubt that's horrific. No doubt all the other children are saying also, I mean, I, I don't doubt how difficult that was. And then his grandmother said that this young man was very unhappy, never smiling, never talking. Okay, I'm it could, I'm sure it was horrible having a pedophile for a father, but this right. does not give you the right, the excuse to do this to another human being and certainly not an innocent 10-year-old. No, absolutely not. And did anybody ever try to help this child did what? anybody right i mean does everybody just say that he seems it seems terrible for him that he has a pedophile for a father and he seems so unhappy and you know just oh well or did anybody try to seek you know mental health counseling for the child or for the family or for anybody else Exactly. Exactly. Clearly, he would have needed help to get through something as traumatic as this. And again, we don't know what he was exposed to. We have no idea what he was exposed to growing up. All right. So, so that's enough on, on his background. Um, now, how the suspect was caught. I find this really interesting, Alina. About 200 tips came in. And I do believe that people, honestly, most people really want to do well, do good, right? Yes. And I believe that most people want to help. So, because this was a popular bike path and trail, apparently several people 
claim that they saw Lily on her bicycle. They remembered her, and then they remembered her either talking or being with what was described as another kid. So I think you would think of as a 14-year-old as being another kid. That's, I think, really important. They went, you know, they got on Reddit. They started, you know, posting their clues and what they saw. One person posted, quote, my stomach turns when I think that I saw that girl in a pink purple hoodie on her bike with another kid on my way out. I have a suspicion that it could be another kid that did it. And then 24 hours later, the cousin was arrested. So Alina, I know, again, you stick to the science, but a call like this or a post like this can really help narrow the field. It gives me chills. And I, I do think deep down people want to help and the trend towards crowdsourcing yeah. uh, is, is huge, right? Because people want to help and they want to be a part of this, of this world And there are so many cold cases right now, which I think is where crowdsourcing, you know, really got its start and combined with the, um, you know, the fact that law enforcement agencies have lost funding and there's, you know, there's this perfect storm that leads to relying upon things like this. So, you know, I think it's great. The challenge lies in an overwhelming amount of tips and people wanting to be helpful. And I saw this in working, you know, in the Kaylee Anthony case, you know, when we have a missing person and people across the world that want to help, you get an overwhelming number of tips. And then at some point, the good, true, honest tips get buried in a sea of of tips that may or may not have good, honest, true meaning. And, you know, we were responding in our in our forensic unit to. Uh, I saw bones over here. I saw bones over here. And in some places we were responding to calls for, you know, chicken wings in the parking lot of Hooters. Right. And we have to respond to everything because we don't know which tip is valid and which tip is not. But at some point when you get thousands of tips, it becomes overwhelming to try to sort through which tip has meaning and which doesn't. So in this case, where that meaningful tip rose to the top so quickly and was validated so quickly and reached out to is amazing. It really is. It really is. And, and um, obviously the people who saw her feel especially um, touched by this and affected by this because you feel a sense of obligation when you've seen a child, you didn't pick up on anything, but you remembered her. And then all of a sudden you find out within minutes or seconds of that she was killed it's very disturbing. Absolutely. And and why would that raise a red flag? Two children playing in a in a park, one on a bike or, you know, on a walking trail. There's nothing there that should indicate to that person that there was something amiss. Right. So they should feel no guilt or remorse over not doing anything. There was nothing to be to be done at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's a really good point. The teen in this case has been charged with murder, sexual assault, and sexual assault of a child. Cameras have been allowed into the courtroom for his preliminary hearings, but with lots of limitations. You cannot see the defendant's face. You cannot see the gallery. You can hear the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and you're looking at the judge. We have a clip from Fox 9 TV. So the voice you're about to hear is of the district attorney, Wade Newell, who describes what he says is the teen's 
confession and version of events. Let's play that clip. Punched the, the victim in the stomach, knocked her to the ground, essentially strangled her, hit her with a stick before um, strangling her to the point of death before he then sexually assaulted her. So Alina, based on what the DA said here, it appears that she was killed first and then sexually assaulted. Can the forensics figure out that level of detail in such a short period of time? That would be the medical examiner that does the uh, autopsy would be able to make that determination as to whether or not any any bleeding injuries were done post-mortem so that, you know, after we die, obviously blood ceases to circulate. So any injuries that, you know, without knowing what all of her injuries are, if there were any injuries that would cause bleeding that were done post-mortem, those would, would not bleed. Uh, so the, the medical examiner that does the autopsy would be able to indicate which injuries were obtained, you know, either pre-mortem, paramortem around the time of death or post-mortem after death. In a situation like this where you have a teen who has allegedly confessed, told the authorities what he says happened, can that also give you a chart to work from as a forensic investigator thinking, okay, well, you know, he said this, we don't know whether it's true or not. Is it your job to validate that that is true or to prove it untrue? Well, the things that the thing that confessions do is, yes, it's great to have. And everybody, you know, on the outside would assume that a confession is the holy grail. And it's almost like, oh, that's stop. That's all we need. But it's not. And especially in the case of a juvenile, because I guarantee that we're going to see later in court that somebody is going to bring about his age as a reason to throw out the confession, or we will see, um, you know, whether or not uh, an adult was present when the confession was taken. We're going to see maybe an allegation of police coercion for the confession. There is going to be some challenge of the confession as to whether or not it was valid. We need physical evidence to corroborate. Now, in his confession, you know, he has stated that he planned to do this. The one thing that that gives us is it tells us premeditation. Mm, right. So that will be helpful when it comes to the, you know, the district attorney or the state attorney in Wisconsin and the charges that they have filed. So we will see that. And, you know, in Wisconsin with the charges they filed, it's going to go to adult court. Yeah. So absolutely. that's going to be meaningful when it comes to that aspect. But, you know, from the confession, we can, you know, glean certain things that can guide us in terms of of evidence as to where to look, you know, based on what he said he did. And in this case, you know, he said that he punched her. He said that he strangled her. You know, if he gives details as to whether or not he used his bare hands or did he use something from that wooded area? Did he take it with him? Did he leave it? You know, all of those things are going to give us clues as to where we might look, you know, from a crime scene perspective. Now, unfortunately, if he's used weapons of opportunity from the wooded area, you know, if he's used a stick and then left it there, crime scene investigators are not looking for a needle in a haystack. They're looking for a needle in a pile of needles. Mm. It's going to be very difficult for them, but, you know, maybe information they've obtained from the confession will guide them in that capacity. Well, his bond has been set at $1 million despite requests from the defense that bail be set at 100000 Uh His defense attorney said, hey, he's just a boy. He's not a flight risk. He can't even drive. 
Um, as if him driving is the only option for how he would flee as if an adult can't carry him somewhere else. Like, I don't know, a convicted felon father. Yeah. And let's put everything in perspective here. You're telling me, oh, he's only 14. He can't drive. The kid doesn't have a driver's license, but he is accused of taking the life of another. I mean, you can't. Tell right. me he's a baby. He's and just a child. Right. Exactly. It, that just, that doesn't work. I mean, I, I realize uh, the defense attorney is also saying that the family doesn't have means. That is, that may very well be so, but uh, I don't think that this young man should be out at all under no circumstances. No. And I think what we're starting to see is that they are starting to frame up his defense as setting him up framing him up as the child, the innocent child. He's, but he's just a child. He doesn't have a driver's license. He can't drive anywhere. So they're already framing him up in the eyes of the media as an innocent child. Well, this teen faces the possibility of a life sentence on those three counts surrounding Lily's death. We will be watching this case as we do all cases of interest. Our next case is out of Missouri, where a husband has been convicted of beating his pregnant wife to death and then hiding the body, you know, and getting the idea from watching crime shows. I'm like, really? You watch the wrong crime shows here. He didn't watch well. <laughs> so um, during his murder trial, he pulled this legal maneuver that really surprised a lot of people. He went from, I had nothing to do with it, to... Okay, I did it, but it wasn't premeditated. It was heat of the moment, which is honestly is important because it it determines um, the the sentence. It determines many things. So that was the move that he played, trying to explain that it was heat of the moment. But the jury didn't buy it because this is a man who liked to make to do lists. So not the kind of guy who's spontaneous, right? So um, let's go back to November of 2019. 28-year-old Jennifer Rothwell was married and she was six weeks pregnant. She and her husband, 31-year-old Bo Rothwell, had been married for four years. They had been trying to get pregnant for so long, so it was such a big deal that she was pregnant. Such a big deal. On November 12th of 2019, Jennifer doesn't show up for work. Then she doesn't come home that night. So her husband, Bo, calls the police to report her missing. And according to the police, he even helped look for Jennifer. Mm. Okay. So at the very beginning of this, Alina, we always are looking um, to the people close to the person who's either disappeared sure. or been killed. And also the last person to see them alive. Right. I'm always so surprised by when the killer himself or herself is the one to call the police. Right. And then join the search party. Yeah. I can't. I see this so often and it just always shocks me. What shocks me is, and I've seen this in my 12 years of crime scene, is that people, the lengths that people will go to, to, you know, in this case, premeditate, you know, plan a murder, commit a murder, conceal a murder, call in the murder, join the search party, you know, go through all the 610. But they won't just get a divorce. Oh. God, like, that is what I always say. Literally, I mean, it's really acceptable these days. This is you're not going to get shunned and you know pushed out of your village and forced to live in 
you know, the outskirts of town, you know, like a leper, it, it's it's acceptable. You didn't I don't believe they had any previous children. I, they had they didn't have children. There was nothing to like to worry about as it pertained to that. And, you know, even if they had this baby, it was, you know, very young and like it, it would not have been an issue. Just get a damn divorce. What you would literally rather commit murder and, and potentially face life in prison or the death penalty rather than just like go go talk it out with an attorney. Right. How what? how is that never an option? Even though what? it was on one of his lists, apparently divorce was was on one of oh, his well, lists. Good to know that made the to do list. It was like, you know, <laughs> murder, question mark, d- divorce attorney. Yeah. At least he considered it briefly. <laughs> yeah, good to know. Good to know. OK, let's get into the details of how this case unfolded. I always like to kind of do it in real time because it gives you an idea of what investigators were up against or the flags that they were finding, the red flags along the way. So what's interesting is that Jennifer's car was found about a mile from the house. It was abandoned that morning of her disappearance. So he, so the car is found in the morning, but not tied to Jennifer, if that makes any sense, because she hasn't been reported missing yet. It's not until about 945 that night that Bo reports his wife missing to police. He claims that, you know, he saw her earlier before she went to work and that he received all these calls of concern from her co-workers like she didn't show up for work. What's happened? Oh, my God. So horrible. So this to me, I think, would have been the first red flag when police get to the home. He doesn't permit them to enter. Yeah, why would you not? And the car's a mile away, which is walking distance. That's odd to me, right? Just far enough away that you could park it and then walk back without too much inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And he won't allow his phone to be searched or to even looked at, will not allow access to his car. So here you are. My wife is missing. Oh, my gosh. So concerned. Mm -hmm. So concerned. But no, don't look at my phone. Yeah, but don't come anywhere near me. Now, I will say the flip side to this is unless they have a search warrant and all of a sudden, you know, and you're just like, no, I don't want to let you into my home. I, you know, I, I, it is your right. It is your absolute right to say no. But that makes me think that the primary concern is my preservation versus finding Finding my my wife. wife. Absolutely. Red flag. Yeah, that that one is very troubling. He also declined to give a DNA sample right off the top. Okay, I don't know why. He's married to the woman. Like, obviously, his DNA is going to be all around her. Interesting. And they haven't found her yet, right? So she's simply missing. Now, um, according to court documents, at this point, he asked for an attorney. Okay, that's fine. That's fine, because an attorney is not going to prevent the police from getting into the house if they have a search warrant and you have someone missing and you sure. believe them to be, you know, in, in in some state of crisis or or potential danger. So the next day, this would have been November 13th, police arrest Bo on suspicion of evidence tampering. This is based on police saying that they found cleaning supplies, paper towels, rubber gloves in a trash can outside the home. Hmm. Because when it's trash, it's just trash. (laughs) Right? He doesn't have to give permission for that. (laughs) Right. I Uh, mean, law law enforcement can do uh, a trash pull depending on where it is. If it's left out by the street, they can come grab the trash and then and go through the trash. 
Right. And if it, so. Right. If it's on the property, it's a whole other thing. But sure. But sure. Ag- again, so now um, then they start collecting all sorts of information. They start like obviously talking to her family and friends, his family and friends, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, little things are popping up. For example, um, there is a record of Bo buying the cleaning supplies on the day that we believe Jennifer was murdered. Why this is interesting. Okay. Because he used to Because a man get- is buying cleaning supplies? <laughs> oh, that Bo. He does to do lists and he cleans. And he cleans? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a guy, right? What a guy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it's it's two two things, Alina. One, there's a massive snowstorm rolling through the area. So it's an odd time to be out buying sure. anything. Um, he told police. He was home watching TV mm. that night with his wife, Jennifer, who's missing. Wait. And he used a gift card. Oh, no. Oh, yes. To purchase the cleaning supplies. Okay. So we're starting to see a little unraveling here that things are not making sense. Investigators finally do get in the house pretty quickly because obviously they're seeing all sorts of things that are concerning them. Right. And that's where they say that they found signs of violence, a struggle, things like blood stains on the carpet, damage to drywall in the home and in the basement. They said that the drywall contained samples of human hair. They also noted an overwhelming smell of bleach, both in the home and in Bo's car. And this was the other thing that, Bo had left the garage window open despite the cold temperatures, despite the snowstorm, obviously to dissipate the smell. Sure. These are, you know, you don't, that's not a logical thing to do in a snowstorm. Right. So that's one of the things that people don't understand. This might be the first time that you have committed a crime like this. This is law enforcement's thousandth hundred thousandth, depending on the years that, the, you know, all of law enforcement that's been in your house time that they have interviewed somebody, been in a house, investigated a crime scene. So you think you're slick buying your cleaning supplies with a gift card. They walk in and they're instantaneously like, no, this is not right. And your house smells like bleach and that window is open and there is drywall busted out with hair in it. And I can see that little bit of carpet that you've tried to clean. No, none of this is lining up. So just because you think you've gotten away with something, they've seen this a hundred thousand times before. You're not getting away with anything. And those initial clues, I would think, Alina, this evidence is, it still needs to be processed and you're going to find out a lot more down the road, but it's the visuals of all of this that are telling a story very clearly. That's it. That's the investigative direction, right? That's like the probable cause to get the search warrant, to grab the house, to do the deep bring in the crime scene team type of thing. Those are just the red flags that say there's something here that we need to look into, right? His behavior from the start, you know, when when we walk into an investigation, it's really important for us to not get tunnel vision and go a certain direction. We get guided in a certain direction by evidence, Behavior is evidence. 
odors can be evidence, right? There's nothing that says it has to be a certain thing. So when you walk into a house and somebody says, no, you can't look at this, like you said, no one thing in particular is going to say, well, that's our guy, because, you know, maybe there are certain people that don't want to give their DNA for whatever reasons, or don't want to let the police into their house for certain reasons. And that's their right. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the totality of everything. I'm always preaching that it's not just, you know, one particular thing. I, you know, I call it cafeteria investigation. You don't put one thing on your tray and go in that direction. It's, you have to look at everything. And when you start looking at all of these things, it is telling us a story. It's leading us into a direction and saying, this is probably where we want to look deeper. Mm -hmm. And so six days after Jennifer's disappearance, now it would have been November 18th of 2019, Bo finally tells authorities where they can find his wife. So as you've mentioned in other cases, you know, that so he's going to lead them directly to her. How can you take that back? I mean, how could you possibly not have had anything to do with it if you knew where she was buried? Like, I wonder what made what made him go from, no, I have nothing to do with it all of a sudden. So they must have interviewed him. They must have interviewed him, brought him in. And then he just he he gave in my guess. In addition to the stuff they started finding on his phone, on his work uh, notebook, on on Jennifer's cell phone, let's not forget the man was having an affair. So mm-hmm. I'm going to think that she, the other woman, is just filled with information. Because one of the things that the cops did was when they went through Jennifer's search history, um, she apparently uh, asked this question. What to do if your husband is upset that you are pregnant? Ding, 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 motive. So telling, so sad and so telling. And, you know, one of the things to point out here with the, with the difficulty they had getting pregnant, that's a huge stress on a relationship, you know, especially when, from what we see with that, one party was very happy with this. One party was not. And, you know, one of the things that we, we showed on season one of crime scene confidential is we had a case where there was homicide without domestic violence that was on paper. We know there was domestic violence, but domestic violence doesn't always look like restraining orders. It doesn't always look like a, you know, a black eye. It doesn't always look like a a woman that's cowering in the corner. It doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks like control. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes it looks like emotional abuse. Sometimes it just doesn't look like what we think or have been taught that domestic violence looks like. And I think we probably see that here, especially with, you know, when we look at the house and seeing maybe some of the drywall had some damage with some human hair. Maybe that was related to the homicide. Maybe it was a previous event. I don't know. But there doesn't always have to be a previous history of what we consider physical abuse or domestic violence in order to make that leap. Oh, I agree with you. I I think that domestic violence comes in many forms and including financial control and the threats of, of, you know, you can find the the abused living, let's say, in a home that is beautiful and there is money, but this person is living like they have nothing. And, you know, they have to scrape together and beg for some money for milk. Right. In a situation where this is a, a couple that's very wealthy. I mean, we see, and that is a form of domestic violence. All yeah, of this. Control. 
the control, the control and the abuse. So when they found the body, um, they determined that she died of blunt force trauma to the head. She was found naked and then partially covered with branches and brush. This part I don't get. Like, why was she naked? Why would he do that? I, I realize there are far more heinous things that the man has been convicted of doing. I just am trying to figure out, like, why? Like, what, they're not going to be able to identify her if she's naked? That's crazy. I'm wondering if he thought his DNA might be on some part of her clothing from dragging her and, you know, putting her into the car or from, you know, maybe he held her by the shoulders and shook her or something. And so he was thinking my DNA is going to be on her clothes. So I'm going to just grab these and strip her down. That way my DNA is not on anything that I could have touched. Mm, yeah, I guess he got that from the crime show he was watching. Mm -hmm. Not my show. Oh, not very good, right? So, um, you know, so so now we have found her and now police are still working on the motive. So clearly, based on just Jennifer's search history, we know that she knows he's not happy about the baby. So what was going on in Bo's life, which I think is very important to all of this? Um, eventually, through court records, it comes out that on the night of the murder, the two of them argued that he revealed to her that he was having an affair. He says that the argument got out of control and became very violent. And the issue he says, okay, is that he didn't want to reveal who the other woman was. And Jennifer wanted to know who the other woman was. I have to tell you, that just kind of makes sense to me, right? I'm, mm -hmm. how is she? I mean, I, I mean, I can see this. Sure. I, I can reasonable. totally, totally see this. Um, he says that he referred to the other woman as the quote, mystery bitch. It's like, okay. I mean, no doubt you are six weeks pregnant. You just find out that your husband of four years is having an affair on the happiest day of your life. I get it. She's mad. Yeah. I think she has every right to be angry. Valley. Yeah. Absolutely. So then he testifies that he whacked her from behind with a mallet. A mallet is a really heavy tool. And he just happened to have this on hand while they're arguing in the, quote, heat of the moment. Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. where are we? Are we in the tool shed? I mean, right. I don't know. Where else is the mallet handy? Sure. Um, so he claims that once he hit her in the back of the head, then she fell into the garage door and that he hit her again. How horrible is that? You Even if you lose control for that minute, now that she's down, you you hit her again? You know, there's no heat of the moment. Also, when you hit somebody like in the back of the head, with, they're helpless and you hit them while they're walking away from you. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Yeah. Again. But, you know, this was his idea that he was going to get, you know, at least maybe a reduced sentence or something yeah, uh, if, if he told this kind of story. So then he said, these are his words. Quote, in the heat of everything, I hit her again. I believe I cracked her skull. She fell unconscious and fell down the stairs. So you just admitted, by the way, that, A, this was not the heat of the moment because she's walking away from you. You already had this planned because you had a mallet that, in your hand that you were prepared with. You've planned this out because you've been making to-do lists and you hit her hard enough to crack her skull. And you were aware that you hit her hard enough to crack her skull. 
And you didn't stop yourself. You didn't stop yourself and you didn't call for aid. You didn't say, oh, my God, what did I just do? Let me call and try to render aid. You then went into protect yourself, cover this up mode because, hell, your life just got a lot easier. You can you don't have to worry about a baby. You don't have to worry about a divorce. And then you can go and live your life with mystery, bitch. (laughs) Yes. Problem solved. (laughs) Problem solved, indeed. Well. So back to these claims that this was all heat of the moment. Police and prosecutors say that they found all sorts of lists and notes, which to them suggests otherwise. Bo Rothwell reportedly made a list of pros and cons about leaving his wife before this murder. His pros list contains such items. And here's what I love. He wrote little plus signs in front of each word. Do you love that? A plus and a minus sign. What is he, five? I'm surprised he didn't make an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) Then I would have been more impressed. (laughs) Then I would have seen some analysis of the situation and maybe he would have chosen divorce. So in his pros list, he lists, you know, I I mean, meaning pros to leaving her, that it would be nicer, that he would be with a proven mother, this other woman, better sex life. Hello, big plus for him. More respect he would get. A fresh start would be a plus. These were all reasons to end the relationship. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's look at the negative column. Those are the ones with the little minus signs. He wrote, uh, I guess he didn't like Jennifer and her family. Okay, so she's the problem there is I don't like Jennifer. I don't like her family. I would have to move. Oh, poor baby. Oh, no. Yeah, it's a pain. Yeah. Half of my assets and money. That's it. It always comes down to money, I believe. Possibly have to get another job. Poor baby. And that my family would be disappointed. I have a feeling they're more disappointed right now. I just, I'm going to. Right, right. I don't see a column in there for how they feel about you standing trial for murder. Yeah. So that list was discovered by Bo's boss. It was on one of his notebooks because I guess after Bo was arrested, that the guy was going to take over Bo's project. And then he finds this list, hands it over to the police. Very good thing to do. Very smart. Very smart. But there are more. There's more here. So police say that they found Facebook messages between Bo and his lover, and he was going over options. This is the part where Bo had every opportunity to come up with the, to make the right choice. List of options. Number one, break up. Hello. Very simple. Really? Very simple. Number two, it's not a bad one. He says, admit affair and get a divorce. Glad to see that rational thought is somewhere in there. Yeah. So that's a good one. Mm, number three is curious. Wait and see how the pregnancy goes. What if there's a miscarriage or something? Wow. Or something. Or wow. Huh? Huh? So that was number three. Oh, my God. So, you know, he he ends up leading police. I know we're going back a little bit, but I just wanted to give you what was going on in Bo's mind. Sure. Okay, so that's what's going on with him, with the other Methodical. woman. Yeah. Okay, so this sounds to me like a person who's planning and thinking, yes? See, I mean, it has a methodical thought process. So, I mean, certainly the insanity option is out in court, I believe. We've proven mm-hmm. that he's a rational thinker. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, he apparently, you know, when he disposed of her body, he disposed of her body in a secluded area in Troy, Missouri, which was about an hour north of their home. I do believe, Alina, that had he not led them to her body, given that it was winter, it yeah. probably would have been a long time before she was discovered and connected to this, is my guess. Yeah, it's um, very likely. You know, because it just, we see this a lot with thaws. So um, we talked about how she was naked, apparently to further cover her tracks, his tracks. I like this one. He he had a tarp, apparently, that he used to conceal the body along with cleaning supplies. The tarp and those cleaning supplies used for the scene of the disposal of the body were found in a trash bin off the highway. Everything in the trash leads back to Bo. So in court, he said that he could not explain, he could not explain why he had taken all those actions to cover up um, his crime. That was the part that he could, he had answers for everything else other than he said he got the idea from watching TV crime shows on how to hide evidence. Okay. Then he also said that the reason he left the car, because he said he admits he left the car a mile away, he said, because he wanted it to look like the car had broken down and that something had happened to her, like maybe she'd been abducted. I mean, this is all planning. This is all, this is none of this. I mean, I guess it's somewhat spontaneous, but I kind of don't think so. No, and this happened over an extended period of time. So this was not like a one-time thing. He had to have you know, dropped the car, gone to the store, purchased cleaning supplies. You know, he drove at least two hours because you said the body was an hour away yep. where she was mm-hmm. done. So he had to have driven there, driven back. That's at least like a, a three hour process. This is a long period of time. So to say, oh, I don't know why I did any of this is bullshit. You you've thought about this for a very long period of time. A long period of time. Unbelievable. You did it to cover and save yourself. That's why you did it. So, you know, life would have been so much easier if he had followed some of his other things on his list, like just break up or get a divorce. Break up. So much easier. Anyway, Bo Rothwell found guilty by a jury. What a surprise on first degree murder, tampering with physical evidence and abandonment of a corpse. The first degree murder charge carries a sentence of life without parole. I hope he doesn't get out at all. I hope he doesn't either. He did this to himself. He made his choices. He made his list. He chose the option he chose. Yeah, absolutely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on our social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike, with the latest. What's going on, Will? Hey, how's it going, Anna? Hey, Alina. Hey, Will. All right, so this one is still an ongoing sort of situation, but we have a little bit of a case of an alleged love on the run. So an Alabama corrections official and an inmate whom she allegedly had a special relationship with are currently missing. Now, the Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office announced that Vicki White, who was the assistant director of corrections, and inmate Casey Cole White, same last name, no relation, we've been told, but these two left the detention center at approximately 9.30 a.m. to go to court, and they have not been seen or heard from since. This happened last Friday. So it's still not clear exactly what led to Casey Cole White's escape from the detention center. 
But authorities previously said that Vicki White, uh, she said that she was dropping off the inmate at the courthouse for a mental health evaluation. And then she was actually going to go to see a doctor to seek medical treatment for herself. Now, Vicki White had actually been with this corrections department for over 15 years. And this Friday, the day this allegedly occurred, was supposed to be her last day of work before she retired which is really, really unfortunate timing. Now, this relationship has been confirmed now through an investigation and by independent sources. And according to U.S. Marshals, the pair was last seen on Friday in Rogersville, Alabama. This is about 30 minutes east of Lauderdale County, where the corrections uh, facility was. They were driving a gold and copper 2007 Ford Edge with unknown plates. Uh, the Marshals Service called Vicki White most recently a wanted fugitive, and they're currently offering a $5,000 reward for information information about her whereabouts. There's also a $10,000 reward for the inmate's whereabouts. That's Casey Cole White. Now, he was in prison on a capital murder charge. So it's unclear whether she did this willingly or if she was coerced or threatened to somehow to participate. They're not exactly sure, but they do know for certain that she did participate. There are some reports that this Ford Edge that they drove away in was purchased by her in cash and left in a mall parking lot, uh, which could indicate, you know, some level of premeditation. So Casey Cole White, uh, the inmate in this one is also a six, nine man who weighs 330 pounds and has brown hair and hazel eyes, which I don't know if the eyes were what did it for Vicky, um, but time will tell. And the comments, uh, a lot of people were really interested in this one. Uh, Elizabeth N said, it's Alabama. Are you sure there's no relation? Um, we actually got a lot of comments about uh, the state in which it takes place. No offense to Alabama. We normally pick on Florida on this show. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's all in good fun. Uh, Joseph S. said, have the cops checked the no-tell motel just off the interstate? Which, hey, I, I hear they have great rates. So uh, that, that could be a possibility. Michael D., there were a few people who talked about this being like a movie. Michael D. said this whole situation will turn into a lifetime movie. Um, which I, I think I could very well see. I can hear like the over-dramatized music right now. Um, curious to see who they'll, like what better looking versions of both of these people they will inevitably cast. Uh, and Alicia D actually had a title for the movie possibly called Love After Lockup, which mm. I'm not, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, TD said she liked working in the prison so much she decided to make herself eligible to be an inmate. There you go. Well, doesn't this remind you of that HBO series that Ben Stiller directed with, I think it's Patricia Arquette, which was based on a true case where, you know, a, um, a, a jailer, right, fell in love with an inmate and had this huge escape planned. Honestly, I, I, I think she's been watching HBO this one. And I think she totally was having an affair with this guy. And this was their plan to run away because she finally felt that someone got her, understood her, loved her. Now, where in the world are you going to hide this man? Such a big man. I'm going to place bets. I'm from Florida and I'm going to say they're found in a Cracker Barrel in Florida. Ooh. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. This is also the exact same plot of uh, of raising Arizona. Yeah. Nick Cage. And it's Nick Cage gets broken out. It is, um, or, it is, well, he's it, with the corrections officer. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I, I have to admit that is one of my favorite cases this week. Honestly, it really is. It's a wild one. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Thanks, Will.
Later. Well, Alina, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Where can people follow you, not only on social media, but tell us more about your show, where they can find it? Absolutely. So my show, Crime Scene Confidential, you can binge watch all six episodes on Discovery Plus right now. And you can follow me on social media at Alina Burrows. And so, Alina, I, I, can can you ever help yourself from in, inserting yourself into a case? I mean, do you find yourself like, oh, my God, I got to call this person. Oh, I have to do this because I have a theory. Do you do you do that yourself? You know, I, I try not to, but it's <laughs> it's hard when I see something and I'm like, you know, here's my theory uh, on this or I think this is why they did this. So, you know, I try not to step where I'm not asked, but if people ask me to, then, yeah, I, I have a, a soft spot for trying to help out in cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally hear you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I, I, I know you're super busy. I hope you come back. I thoroughly enjoyed um, talking with you. Anytime. It was so much fun to be here. Oh, good. Okay. You you all can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Um, of course, you can get this episode and all episodes of our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, sign up to get our newsletter, truecrimedaily.com. And, um, you know, until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>